Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Realwatersports.com is our retail partner. And it's also where you can browse and fantasize about your next surfboard purchase. They have a 1,500 board inventory, including a lot of boards that today's guest, Michael Ciaramella, has reviewed. The JSs, the Hayden Shapes, Pizels, and then a lot of small batch collaboration boards with the likes of Roger Hines, Maurice Cole, Chris Christensen. And they actually do uh, their own surfboard reviews that are excellent. The guys in the videos may not surf as well as Mikey surfs, but they are very informative. They're a great single stop on the internet to gather a bunch of information about a bunch of different surfboards. Their staff is really mainly interested in getting you on the right board for your ability level and your local waves. So contact them, peruse on realwatersports.com. Of course, they're located in North Carolina, but they can ship surfboards to you anywhere in the world for one low flat fee. So realwatersports.com for your next board and all your surf accessory needs. Enjoy. Welcome back to the show. I hope that you're enjoying this pipe event. Um, We have a couple of phenomenal days behind us, and it looks like we have even more incredible days ahead for both the men and the women. It really is shaping up to be a historic event. Um, But until we get there, in the meantime, we are bringing you a conversation with someone who actually just got back from Hawaii, Stab Magazine's resident surfboard reviewer, writer, content wrangler, Michael Ciaramella. Michael and I rarely ever communicate, but we surfed together at Surf Ranch back in 2017. I don't think we've actually spoken since nor seen one another, but I track all of his work. I watch his surfboard reviews. He and I both have podcasts. But there was something that he posted on Instagram recently that prompted me to invite him on this show. He posted a clip of himself surfing Waimea Bay. And he had previously posted a clip of himself snagging a gem at Pipeline. And with each of these posts, in the caption, he wrote a little description um, about the fear and the feelings surrounding those sessions. And I thought that they offered the perspective of you know, where I sit, having not surfed those waves, maybe where the everyman sits, thinking about those waves, seeing professionals surf those waves. And so I wanted to hear more from him about that specifically, what it's like for a non-pro to confront your fears, battle the crowds, and then score a really good ride at each of those spots. And for the record, Michael isn't a pro, but he does surf a lot better than you or I do. So I can't really package this as an everyday surfer confronting the North Shore, but his perspective and way of communicating does represent the everyman. So that's what I was eager to hear. We also discuss some stab business as well. So without further ado, my name is David Scales for Surf Splendor, and here's my conversation with surf media man, Michael Ciaramella. 
How's it going? Classic. It's going great. How are you? Wow. This is so weird. I don't know why I didn't expect your voice to be exactly what it sounds like on the podcast, but it just does. I don't know why I expected you to be wearing a shirt when I shouldn't. Have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People think it's a shtick. It's, it, it's only kind of a shtick. It's hilarious. What's the weather where you're at right now? How cold is it outside? Uh, I haven't been outside in a few days. It was below freezing for a bit, but I think it's a bit warmer today, maybe like 40 or something like that. Perfect uh, shirtless weather. Yeah. Well, I've been locked in the same room pretty much for the past five days or whatever it's been. So yeah, it's just me and my dog just staying all warm and cozy in the bed. Um, how's COVID? Uh, good. I'm past it now. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to try to test again today. I'm pretty sure I'll be negative. Should be nice to get to go around. So, um, yeah, should be good. You didn't get very sick. No, just like a little head cold. It was annoying. It just kind of made me feel all fuzzy, but yeah, it wasn't bad. Good. Um, how do you pronounce your name? Michael Saramella. Saramella. Yeah. Or yeah, I, I say Saramella. You could say Ceramella. Um, in Italy, it would be Ceramella, but yeah. Yeah. What's an unholy potato? <laughs> uh, that is, that's my one little, my one little secret that I don't tell anybody. It's just, that's oh, really? just one for me. Yeah. Is it a secret because there's no actual meaning behind it? That's the thing. Nobody's going to know ever. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so where are you quarantining? Where do you live? I've been based out of New York and New Jersey for the past like year and a half now because my oh, okay. wife, yeah, my wife got into Yale. So we were going to come move up here anyway. And then the pandemic happened. So rather than living in Connecticut, we just moved in with my mom because it allowed her to be able to still kind of access Yale pretty easily without having to live in shithole Connecticut. So we lived in New York at my mom's house for like the full year. And then once she got done with Yale, we moved down to my childhood home in New Jersey, which nobody occupies the year round. It's kind of like a beach home now for my mom. So I was just basically living there, but I've been in New York because we have to like watch my parents' dogs and stuff right now. So what is your fiance? Did you say fiance or wife? Wife. Now we had just a small ceremony kind of got engaged and then married fairly quickly. Got it. Um, what is she studying at Yale? She got a, basically a secondary MBA. She, it's called a master's in advanced management. She, um, she got her MBA the year prior in Costa Rica, where she's from, and then backed it up here. And now she's working. That's incredible, man. Congratulations to Thank her. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Congratulations and to, and to, to you. As well. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's the same. I ask people that I interview, I'm like, um, you know, if they have like a really successful relationship or they've been married for a very long time or whatever, I ask for relationship advice. And the common denominator among everybody is marry somebody smarter, you know, uh, more talented, more successful, and just enjoy the ride is the advice. Yeah. And just hang on. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I feel like you and I could have probably connected via podcast over the years, a lot of different times, I track a lot of what you do and I like it, but really what inspired this conversation was that Instagram post, um, of you guys paddling out at YMEA. 
So we'll cover that. We'll cover pipe because that also caught my attention. But it really seems like you just had a banner year of waves in 2021. Is that true? I would mostly agree with that. Yeah, it was, well, it was weird. I like went, I kind of like binges and purges. Um, because I lived basically in New York, I didn't surf much through the first half of 2021. Like I live probably like an hour and 15 from the nearest beach. And that's wow. driving through like the city and driving through, like I calculated it. It costs me probably about $50 with all the tolls and parking to go surf minimum. And Crazy. it takes a minimum of three hours driving alone. So trying to fit that into like a work day is really tricky. And then on top of that, the waves are very rarely good where I live. They get insane, but it's just super fickle. So I would go through, you know, month long periods without surfing at all. And then you maybe get one day where the waves are really good. And then you take another month off or a few weeks off and stuff. And then, so yeah, a lot of periods like that where I wasn't surfing. And then I also hurt my knee when I was in Indonesia. Um, so I didn't surf for two months after that, but then on the flip side, I went to Indonesia for three weeks. I was in Costa Rica and Mexico for like three weeks. And then I just spent six weeks in Hawaii. So it's just a lot of like binging and purging basically. But the binging is in epic surf. Epic, epic, epic surf. Like the best waves I've ever seen in my life for this year, for sure. That's insane. Um, it's such an, you're living such an unconventional life for, I don't know what the viewer would think a surfer lives like. I, I don't know when I grew up and I was reading mag, looking at surf magazines or watching surf videos and I'd see people who surf good. I just presumed that they lived on the sand at the beach. And so my goal was always to move closer to the beach because that's the only way to get better at surfing, but to see the level of surfing that you do and try to understand that you actually live an hour and a half from the beach is kind of, it's unconventional. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's unusual for me as well. Like for, well, yeah. actually I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I didn't live near the beach when I grew up, but I moved to New Jersey when I was 12 and lived near the beach. And then from 12 until let's see, like 24 or something, I lived probably no more than 10 minutes from the beach at any time. Cause I went to school in California at UCSD right on top of blacks, which was unbelievable. And then I lived in California for a few more years, just living. And then I moved down to Costa Rica with my then girlfriend, now wife. And we lived there for two years. And then, yeah, basically just this past year and a half has been like the most away from the ocean I've been. But again, that also coincides with then going on these trips where I get like the best waves that I've ever had. And right. the end goal though, is to live somewhere on the sand like that. I, for sure, I'm not going to be like staying here. This is not what I want my existence to be. I'm just making it work as we kind of go. When you were growing up, did you have ambitions to be a surf journalist or work in surf media? I, I wouldn't say that that was like an ambition of mine. Like ultimately I wanted to be, at least until a certain age, I wanted to be a pro surfer. Like I recognized that at whatever, 14 or 15, my mom was always really like pushing for like education. And so that was like always in my mind. And so I okay, went, okay, I went to school in California, still got to surf every single day, lived on top of blacks. And then through connections that I'd made in my years of surfing, I knew somebody at surfing magazine. So within a month of graduating, I had a job there and then it all just kind of snowballed from there, but it was being just bad enough to like, not even have the delusion of grandeur that I would be a professional surfer that put me in a situation to now live a life that I'm really happy with. It takes a certain amount of smarts though, to adapt to the ways that everything has changed in that amount of time. Um, 
what did you do at surfing and how long were you there? So I started interning at surfing in my last year of college and I got a job in July of 2016. And by February of 2017, surfing had collapsed. So whether that was my fault or not, you can decide for yourself. But um, yeah, I basically was just like a low level junior writer for them, just kind of doing website stuff, some Instagram stuff, um, just kind of what you would do with my background, which is just knowing a lot about surfing, but also being very like green and whatever. I was basically a glorified intern. What was your academic background? Uh, I mean, I went into college not having any idea what I wanted to do, knowing that I was no good at anything that warranted any real education like math or science. So I just picked pretty much the easiest classes I could so that I could surf as much as possible, which I did like international studies, sociology. And I think I got like a business minor to appease my mom, but didn't really retain much of what I learned in school, but I learned so much at college, like the whole experience that made it worthwhile. But I do wish, and I would probably tell anybody else that's like younger, like a future child or whatever, like you don't need to rush into that experience. Like it was great, but I feel like I would have gotten so much more out of it if I, I had sort of figured out what I wanted to do with my life before I committed to it. Do you know now? I mean, when do you ever figure that out? You know, that's a that's a very good point. I guess I, I don't know now. Like I'm still like, I mean, am I going to be writing about surfing when I'm 50? I don't know. Maybe, probably not. But yeah, I guess hopefully I guess that's as a, a good side point. project. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, hopefully you're not committing your life to it. But um, yeah, the advice to the future kid thing. I mean, you and I. I don't know. I'm older than you, but how old are you? 28. Okay. Yeah. I just turned 40. So, but I think we both still grew up in a time when, um, it was just, it was, you expected that you go to college and nobody even ran the math. It was just, we all know college is wildly expensive and you have to go and nobody ever figured out on the back end, you know, or I think we are now that, you know, you're not necessarily going to see a return on that investment. We figured out 10 and 20 years ago that you're very likely not going to actually use the degree that you went to go get. Um, and so I think for, yeah, the future kid conversation will be very, very different because the job market now values things that are so much more diverse than just a college degree. Even those, all the tech billionaires are, they don't have the college degree anymore. You know what I mean? So um, it'll be totally different, but Anyways, where did you go after surfing magazine before I, was there anything between surfer and stab and, or surfing and stab? And then also what was the proposition from stab? Yeah. So I had a tenure at beach grit, um, within, I guess a couple of months of me parting from surfing Rory Parker, who was at the time kind of like the third leg of beach grit, he left. And so a spot opened up there. I didn't like know a lot about Beach Grit other than I just thought Chaz and Derek were really funny and great writers. And so I kind of looked up to them in that sense. And I just reached out to Chaz. He was actually living at the time, like I was living maybe 500 meters from him. And so I just reached out to him and said, hey, I'm Mike. I don't know if you know who I am or whatever. I wrote for surfing. Um, I'm just kind of like trying to figure out what I'm doing. I'm looking for maybe some more like writing opportunities. Don't know if that could work. And Chaz and I went out and had a drink at a little shithole bar in Carved by the Sea. And 
I ended up writing for them for maybe like six months or something like that. And basically was picked up from Stab via that, I guess, in some capacity. I don't know if they were like necessarily following my work at BeachGrid or whatever, but that is how, in my mind, it worked out. I was like, I was working for BeachGrid and then got picked up by Stab. Um, what was the proposition from Stab or what was the, what was the role that they offered you? Uh, I think they just, they needed help on the writing front. They just needed fresh people, new people, more people. They had a pretty small team at that time. It was pretty much from what I saw, at least it was pretty much just like Morgan Williamson doing most of their editorial, um, on, yeah. Cause they, they didn't really have, I guess they had a small Australian team at that time as well, but on the American side, it was just Morgan. And then Sam McIntosh, the founder was living in the States at that time as well. So he basically just approached me and offered me a retainer to write, you know, X amount of pieces per week. And just kind of went from there. And, um, were they still printing the magazine then? No. Um, okay. I pretty much had never seen a stab printed issue until I started going into the office and they had some like older copies, but I don't know about you. Wow. Like I just never saw them in the U S like they just never made their way to wherever I was. They didn't, I don't think they ever really had, um, distribution here, but I would see the magazine just through somebody who worked in the surf industry, you know, every few issues or something. Um, it just seems like they're the roles of the time that you were talking about weren't very well defined. So it, what you're doing now seems like it has much more definition and it plays very much into your, uh, strengths and everybody's role there seems pretty defined with a loose, like an opportunity. Here's the definition of what you do, but also you're welcome to do more if you want. Um, or if you have ideas, you know, we'll explore those ideas. That's what it seems from just the viewer, the user standpoint, uh, because I would imagine your strength isn't as a writer, but you're working in, and you write, you know, you write well, obviously you can make a living doing it, but your strength is surfing and communicating a lot of those details. And so, um, was the job that he hired you to do just writer or did he offer other opportunities to do stuff like you're doing now? No, it was just for writer. Um, okay. and you know, granted I was what, like 20, 322 or something at this time and I didn't know what I wanted to do I didn't know what my capabilities were I think Sam like people that know me and first meet me would for sure say that I am like a pretty reserved person some people would maybe say I'm standoffish <laughs> I'm not trying to be I'm really? just not a very like outgoing sort of um what's the term I I'm an introvert not next yet and I'm not extroverted um yeah, yeah. And I think when Sam met me, like he probably did not see any capacity for me to do like video face to camera, stuff like that. Like even when I started doing board tests, he gave me a very kind of specific prompt, like, oh, I don't want you to like talk to camera and like tell people about the board. Like you need to create like a different system where you use these graphics and stuff to, to display the info that you're trying to share. And um, we did that for a while. And then ultimately we ended up doing more of like a proper review style thing. And I think those worked a lot better. And I guess, I mean, I'm, I'm still like, I still get super weird about being on camera. Like it's, it never feels comfortable, but I feel like I'm way better at it now than I was before. Um, so it's just one of those things, like you said, there's so much like opportunity within STAB. Like, yeah, you got to do your day-to-day -day tasks, but if you want to go above and beyond, if you have a big idea, nine times out of 10, they'll support it. And that's really cool. Yeah, it's been, there was, what do you think that flash point of change was? 
um, Sam would probably be the right guy to answer this question. But like I said, there is much more definition in the roles now. There seems to be a lot more opportunity for exploring creative ideas now than the time that you entered the business. What, what do you think the change was? Well, our team has grown a lot. Um, and especially now with the premium side of things where we have people who you know pay a subscription every month, it frees us up to be able to one, have more creative control over what we do. We don't have to be so tied to brands paying us to do things all the time. And two, it just allows us to build our team out and to make those roles a bit more specified, as you noted. So it gives people a little bit more time to like really work on the things that they're passionate about rather than just trying to keep the lights on all the time. Right. So it's, it's been a number. Of, and also just like us figuring out how this evolving media business works. Like I've only, I've been at Stab for like five years and already I feel like we've gone through two or three fundamental changes in terms of how we view media as a whole, as a commercial enterprise and all this. Thing. So it, it just, things are changing so much and we're just trying to keep up with it. You guys are leading the charge, I think, in terms of keeping up with it. The STAB premium model, well, first of all, is the STAB premium model a success or has it been a success? Absolutely. Like I, okay, I was, I was a little skeptical <laughs> going into it. I was like, are we really going to like, are people really going to pay us to do this? Especially, you know, cause we'd been producing content for a long time and some of it was really, really good. Some of it was, you know, okay. But it's like trying to train people out of their ways of just receiving free things for the past decade or whatever it's been. It's really, really difficult. So I was pretty skeptical going into it. And I've been pretty shocked in our first year, you know, just the number of people that were able to not just bring on, but retain. Like we just had our first real annual cliff, like because we started maybe like 13 months ago or something. So those first people who signed up and got an annual membership, their thing was up for renewal and they, you know, had to make a decision ultimately. And the majority of them stayed on, which is really, really cool. Yeah. I was on that uh, list of people and you guys communicated it effectively and um, there was no option. Like I'd never even considered once not re-signing, you know, and the value of what you guys have done, it was evident from the get-go, the way that you launched it, all that kind of stuff. It was just, that value was very evident. Um, I was not as apprehensive as you about you guys doing the stab premium thing. I was a huge proponent for it. It's the only solution really. And I think that's another thing that Sam uh, communicated effectively to the audience, which is the old model's broken. So whatever you like about STAB, we're not going to be able to give it to you anymore if we just continue chasing this model down the drain. But guess what? We have a new idea. It's an idea that everybody else in the world is already implementing through Netflix, Disney, whoever else. And so, and it's a pittance, you know, like the amount, I don't even know what the amount is. Is it $8 a month? Seven if you get the annual deal. Yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's an amount of money that like, I don't even notice missing. And the other thing that's been great about the way that you guys implemented it was what you've been delivering since going premium is better than what was available before. So I would have paid for what was available before, but the fact that it's actually better now actually makes me feel great about the expense. Oh, that's awesome. It's great to hear. Yeah. Well, the video production stuff has gone through the roof, you know, like that's the stuff that I think everybody really wants to see. Yeah. Well, Sam was really adamant about like not making this in any way, like a cash grab. Like his whole thing was every dollar 
that you guys put into it, we're going to reinvest into what we do. And so our team almost doubled in the past year in size. Like we've brought yeah. on so many more kind of like producers and video editors and all that. And like, we're just trying to keep pace and make sure that we can keep feeding people back, you know, what they're giving to us. So that's really our goal, at least in the short term is just to like kind of find that pace that we can keep it moving. And then from there, maybe even come up with bigger ideas and grander aspirations. Yeah, there's endless ideas, to be honest. It's all a matter of how well you can fund them. Um, but the the other thing is about paying the, the premium is we all understand that video production is expensive, you know? So it's kind of like we understand, I don't know, writing or something that I don't know that you could do from home. Maybe people don't associate that with, oh, we need to pay for this. But when you see these video, you guys going to Mexico, collaborating, uh, bringing pro surfers, bringing all these boards, mapping that stuff out months in advance to get the boards for the right, per all that kind of stuff. Recogn we recognize there's um, hard expense there. So um, what was the concept with Stab going to Hawaii and obviously we understand magazines in the past go to Hawaii every season, every, the whole industry, but that's all disbanded. So I feel like this is the first quote magazine trip to Hawaii that I've seen in probably five or six years. What was the concept? Well, I mean, maybe it's the first time that we've made it as a parent, but we've been there for the past, since I've been here, basically like always working on something, typically something around the Vans triple crown, because Vans is like a major partner of stab. And so when they have a big thing like that, like we try to get behind it as much as possible. And that was pretty much it for this year. Like we were there to cover the Vans Triple Crown and everything else happening in the North Shore in the way that felt kind of like you were, you know, it was there, it was grassroots, it was organic. It was like, here's what happened this week on the North Shore. And cause not everybody gets to be there, obviously. It's a privilege to be there. And we feel like we wanna be able to share that experience with as many of our viewers as possible. So yeah, that's what the pickup was every week, 30 minute newsreel basically on what was happening in the North Shore. What was your role? I obviously, I would do my little bunker thing every week where I was specifically focused on the competition side of the Vans Triple Crown, which because it was digital, maybe wasn't as visible as it would be in a year where people are actually like physically competing at Holly Eva Sunset and Pipe. So it was my job to let people know what was going on in that world. And then um, Brendan Buckley and I basically wrote the news segments for Tosh and Pua. Um, so all those little like news bits that you were getting from them, they were coming from Buck and myself. So that was, and like the, the funniest thing is, is I had the best excuse ever to go surfing every day because every time I went surfing, I would see something or hear something that would like instantly be a news piece. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's my job. <laughs> I got to go out there every morning and spend three hours in the lineup or I'm not doing my job. So um, that was a big joy of the whole thing for sure for me. That's epic. Um, had you ever surfed pipe or YMA prior to this trip? Pipeline, yes. YMA, no. Um, have you ever served proper pipe prior to this trip? I paddled out at proper pipe, but paddling out and surfing it are very, very different things. Um, cause it's not a wave where there, there are a lot of like kind of scarier waves in the world where just paddling out puts you in instant danger. Pipeline is not really the case unless it's like huge, like second reefing and rolling through, then you can get caught. But on a normal kind of like good sized day at pipe, it breaks in a really similar spot every time. So as long as you're not an idiot and don't get caught inside super deep, 
you could sit out there for six hours and never be in danger whatsoever. So I'd spent time at pipe when it was serious, but I never really like had a dig at it. On those previous trips, why hadn't you had a dig? It's just so scary. <laughs> like, so you paddled out intending to maybe work your way over, but just decided not to. Well, that was, there's a bit of a mental shift for me this year. Like I'd paddled out in those past years, knowing in my heart that like, even if a really great wave magically came my way and there was nobody, no, yeah, nobody else around, like I didn't really want it in my heart, I, but I felt <laughs> this like obligation because you can always go out there. Like even on a day when it's 10 foot, you can go and find a sick little four footer that runs along the inside, you know? So I would go out on bigger days, actually just thinking like, okay, I'm going to get the waves that I can't get on the four to six foot days because those are the sets and the good guys get those. So I'm going to try to get the, the wave that's a tiny wave for today, but is a really good wave on the days that I'd actually want to surf pipe. And every once in a while, I'd like pick off one that was decent, but it was, yeah, just not at all trying to surf the waves that are people are actually out there for, which is not a great way to do it. But when you're a scavenger, you don't really have any other options. Um, so what was the shift mental shift this year? It was just the amount of swells that we had over that period. Like everybody's been talking about it on the WSL broadcast, but like January, this is like the best month that Hawaii has had in years and years. It was West swell after West swell after West swell. So one that allows you to get more repetition and just doing something more and being exposed to it just desensitizes you a little bit at least. And two, all the locals and even all the visiting surfers that in a normal year, they get maybe two or three great days in a month and they're all out there trying to get their hero wave, you know, for their sponsors, their YouTube, whatever. Yeah. It's a little bit more spread out. People aren't like rushing out first thing in the morning necessarily. And they're not staying out as long as they would because they know that tomorrow is going to be great. And the next day is going to be great. And so it just created a, a slight sense of calm in the lineup, still completely chaotic, still way too many people, but relative to other years, I just had way more opportunity to be in a position for one of those waves. And then because I'd been more exposed to it, it felt more like, okay, this is normal. I can do this. And then you do it once or twice and you're like, oh, wow, I really can do this. Like, it's actually not yeah. the craziest thing in the world, even though it looks like it when you are watching people from the side and you're seeing a wave that is literally oververt and they're taking off and you're like, how that's not possible. But then you, you know, you can find one that's maybe not quite that steep or you take off on one and you surprise yourself and you're like, wow, like it's, it's actually doable. You posted a, pipe wave on Instagram that was a legit wave. I mean, and it was a sit, you wrote it perfectly. It was a sick barrel. Was that your first legit pipe wave? Yeah, I would say that was my first legit pipe left for sure. Like first wave that was like solid and I got barreled on hands down. Um, who was somebody from Stab filming that? Uh, yeah. Yes, I think so. They were actually down there. That was filmed on the morning that if you watched in the pickup, there was a day that Harry Bryant and Mickey Clark surfed all three triple crown waves in one day. So it was actually yeah. on that morning. So yeah, there were some filmers down there and we only had like a 40 minute window from when we paddled out to when the uh, backdoor shootout started that day. So it was a really tight window. Um, but what that meant was I think not many people paddled out because they didn't want to just be like, oh, what am I going to go try to get one wave? And probably not. So I paddled out and I just went out maybe 30 feet past the rest of the pack because there was only like three people out on that. Like it's not quite second reef. It's almost like one and a half reef where if you get lucky, the wave stands up just enough on that little shallow part that it like chips you in. And that wave just came straight to me. And 
I was like in a position where I was like, nobody's around me. I think I can catch it. And then you're like on top of this and then you have this like existential quandary. You're like, do I actually go on this wave? And it was like, I had to fully convince myself. I was like, you're never going to get a better opportunity. And I took off and then it was pretty much the easiest wave anyone's ever surfed. Like anybody could have surfed that wave. And then I kicked out and I was like, holy shit, like that actually just happened. It is weird. I haven't watched that clip since you posted it, but I do remember feeling exactly what you said. It looked like nobody was out. Yeah. You never so see it like that. And that's, I mean, that would be my strategy going out next year again, is just like bring a bigger board and go on a day that is like slightly second reefing. You know, it doesn't need to be like crazy wash throughs every set or whatever, but if there's just a few out there and you just happen to chip into one and I'm also like, I, I don't need to take that fucking Baron Mamiya under the lip drop. Like I'd much rather roll into a big thing and just kind of see what you find on the end. And I'd also like, as long as I'm getting to the bottom of the wave, and being able to set up and see what's going on. Like I'm fine falling in the barrel. I can fall in a big barrel as long as I feel like I have control going into it. But it's that like having to take that hairpin drop that I'm just not so keen on. So if I can just get a little roll in, I feel like I can, you could, anybody could get a crazy wave at pipe if you get that little roll in. So that was kind of my goal. Yeah. The hairpin drop, I feel like was just the result it was the invention of necessity because there's so many people out there trying to get the easy roll in that you're talking about that they just had to move inside and do that. And then that, but then it's kind of flip flop. Yeah. But it's flip flop because now everybody's on the ledge, you know? And so it's me and a couple of old guys sitting out there that are like trying to get this kind of, yeah, just old guy glory wave. And it's beautiful. What were you writing? I was writing a six, eight local motion board that I actually bought in Hawaii for $75. Shaped by Char- uh, Charlie Smith. That's right. Shaped by Charlie Smith. My, uh, yeah, Buck and I were staying together and he was, um, he was building basically a quiver in Hawaii for $500, just buying boards on Craigslist and Facebook marketplace and whatever. And he stumbled across this two pack of boards and it was just these beautiful old but beautiful local motions and it said 150 on the on the thing i think it was this like navy guy who was just he's about to leave the island just had to get rid of his boards and buck messaged him and he's like i'll get both of them for 225 thinking that it was 150 a piece <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's like but no it was 150 for both and we're like fuck <laughs> so I, I don't know how he didn't just like be like oh no yeah 250 for both you know what i mean like yeah I, for sure, if somebody did that to me, I would have just like totally. tarted up again. Yeah, but he didn't. He was, um, I don't know, just really eager to get rid of him, I guess. And so we picked him up. We each got one, $75 a piece. And I got probably one of the top five most memorable waves of my life on it. And then it broke the next session. So short-lived, but a beautiful existence. I was going to say, um, <clears throat> we know the feeling of a dead board, you know, short board that we're riding all the time at our local beach. But I was wondering if that, if you even recognize the dead feeling, if you're just looking for one big wave like that and you're going straight on it. Yeah. I mean, I wrote it at sunset as well and it felt pretty good. Like I would have been happy to keep riding that board. Yeah. It didn't feel bad. I mean, you could tell the one thing was that you could tell it was pretty ripe to break. Like the foam just felt a little stale. Um, Like it just, it didn't feel solid. It felt kind of wafery and you could just tell that like one good crack and it would snap. And of course that's what's happened. But yeah, as far as like performance wise, it felt totally fine. Um, I actually interviewed Charlie Smith on this podcast. I mean, probably eight years ago, I think he was episode like 10 or 
12 or something like that, believe it or not. That's yeah. I, I wish I knew more. Somebody actually DM'd me saying that I should look more into like the history of Charlie Smith and him and Haliva and all this stuff. And I wish I knew more about him. Um, when I first got the board, I actually, <laughs> I had for like a half a second, I was like, did Chaz come out to Hawaii one year and like get a board made? <laughs> Cause it was like written like kind of on the stringer. And it was one of those things where you, I couldn't tell if it was the shaper's name or the person for whom the board was made. And I was like, yeah. no way Chaz came out here and got a six, eight local motion back when he was like writing paradise, go to hell. You know what I mean? No. Uh, but no, then I was like, no, no, no. It's the shaper, Charlie Smith, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is there, it's such a common name that if you try to Google the local motion, Charlie Smith, you really can't find anything. And he's also very introverted uh, not at all a self-promoter. So he never really published, you know, there, there wasn't much written about him ever, but when I found him, he was living in Maui with, um, Tom Parrish and he were living on the same property. So I'd actually planned to be connecting with Tom Parrish, which I did, but then Charlie was there too. And I had known a little bit about him. Like you said, Haliva, he's known for shredding Haliva back in the day, which I couldn't find any footage of that either. Um, but he was a really, he's a really interesting, cool dude for sure. Yeah. I, uh, so I, I, I owe it to him to learn more. That's for sure. After what there he's given to me. I feel like I could probably dig up his email and I'll send him an email of that post. He would love to see that. I'm sure. That's awesome. Um, tell me about your experience with concussion and how you landed on kind of surfing with a helmet. I feel like that was a huge factor in that little mental shift that I had in terms of like, you know, you can do this, like just go, um, wearing a helmet has made me a significantly, significantly more courageous surfer and not in a way that I'm like brazen and taking off on stupid waves, just going on waves that I wouldn't have before that I should have, but I just didn't have that in me to like push myself over the ledge. Um, and that stemmed from a few different incidents. Like when I was I think I was like 16 or something. I went out to Hawaii for the first time and I hit my head on the reef at back door and I got like some staples in the back of my head and it was pretty scary. It didn't like hurt that bad, but it was like, Oh man, like I could have gotten knocked out there. I was lucky I didn't. Um, and then about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago now, uh, it was like early pandemic days in Costa Rica and we weren't allowed to surf. So I was cooped up in this tiny little apartment by the beach for like a month straight or whatever. And I decided to shave my head because I guess I was going through a bit of a mental break. And uh, a few days later, I decided I can't do this anymore. I'm going surfing. So I paddled out one morning at like dark, basically thinking the cops aren't going to get up before 7 a.m. to kick people out of the water or whatever. So I went and paddled out with my newly shaved head. I got like a small knock on my head and it had a cut it a little bit basically like enough that you probably needed a couple stitches or staples or whatever so I came in I didn't feel like going to the hospital so I just had my friend super glue it and in the process of that I fainted and then rather than coming to I basically had this seizure that was like so strange like I can't even explain the sensation but when I woke up I just felt like there was like a freaking one of those uh uh what are they called one of those shake weights, like inside of my body, like, then it was just wow. like spinning out of control. Like it was, yeah. And I was like, Holy, like what just happened? And they're like, you just had a seizure. And I was like, Whoa. So that was a bit of a wake up call for sure. I got some brain scans. They came back clean, but yeah, it just made me realize that like, I, I am, I'm not that pro surfer, right? Like my 
my body has no ability. I'm also not, not like a manual laborer. Like my body has no ability to like make my life work. Like I, you know what I mean? Like if I don't have my head, I have absolutely nothing. So what am I doing surfing waves that are like actually fairly treacherous without protecting my head? It was just so stupid. And it was my mom for years has been telling me to wear one. It's like, yeah, okay, mom. Um, but I think that seeing a lot of, you know, pro surfers and big name people start wearing them, it really does normalize it. And it does. Uh, yeah. Like you just, you, you can't put a price on seeing someone like Nathan Fletcher or whatever, you know, like just wearing these things and making like the epitome of like the fucking core guy doing it, you know, and like an Owen Wright and whatever. And it just really makes a difference. So realizing that I realized one, I need to wear one for myself. And two, I need to share my story and more stories like these. So that was what kind of started my helmet crusade on stab. I did a few different stories about it. And now this year at pipe, I would say a good third of the lineup is wearing helmets, which is pretty wild. I expect it to be up to 50% by maybe two years from now. Like it's seriously a crazy movement. I'm all for it too. Thanks for sharing that. Um, since you've been wearing the helmet, have you actually had any incidents where you hit your head and you were grateful to be wearing the helmet? Nope, not one. Um, which maybe it's, you know, chicken and the egg, but yeah, not one. Why, uh, it didn't look like you were wearing it at Waimea, were you? No, I wasn't. I, I guess I haven't really gotten to the point where I feel like I'm going to wear it at waves that I'm not going to hit my head on the bottom. That's kind of where my line is at current time. I realized that logically that's pretty stupid because if you get hit by one of those boards going full speed that's probably way worse than hitting the reef so I probably should have been wearing one out there but I also didn't want my like one moment at Waimea to be in a helmet like because they still just do look kind of dorky and I kind of just wanted to have a, a pure moment I also wasn't wearing flotation um which I, I would have if it was available to me but it wasn't but it's still like I don't know there, there is this aspect of like there's nothing cooler than a person just going out in a pair of board shorts and taking on mother nature you know what i mean and i realize it's stupid but there is just a part of that that i still appreciate all of the good work that you did five minutes ago explaining why people should wear a helmet <laughs> just got erased completely i know well it's you know it's this internal devil and angel on my shoulder telling me like oh you you be smart it's like eh, you kind of want to look cool um and i think every, if if everybody wasn't having that conversation, then everybody would wear a helmet every single time they paddled out surfing. So it's obviously, it's not something that we've resolved within ourselves yet, but I think over time, like, you know, everybody wears a helmet snowboarding now. So I think similar things will happen with surfing. The incident in Costa Rica, was that from you hitting the sand or the reef or was it you hitting your board? No. And that's the other great irony of the whole thing. It was me hitting my board. So it's like, and it was not a big yeah. day. Like the waves were small and none of it really yeah. makes sense. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm taking baby steps, David. I'm not shaming you. I just want to have this conversation publicly and let people work it through in their own head <laughs> as well. Cause I agree. Like, yeah, pipe first. YMA will start seeing helmets out there afterwards. When will it be that we're uh, where 90% of the people at Huntington beach surfing a two foot day are wearing helmets. You know, I don't know if we'll ever see that day, but that might be the day that you actually need it the most. That's true. And I, as much as I would hate to see anybody have a head injury, I also don't know if I really want that to be what surfing is like there, there's always going to be some element of danger. Right. And I get trying to mitigate that. I get trying to protect yourself and your loved ones, but 
I also don't want anybody fucking wearing knee pads. You know what I mean? Like how far does it go? I'm okay banging up my knees. I want to keep my head intact. Do you wear a helmet? No, but I'm really inclined to after a lot of your campaign and this winter on the North shore, but I'm like you, I don't think I would wear it on an average beach break day. There'd be certain conditions that I wear it in. Yeah. And I, again, like I for sure should have worn one at Waimea. That was just a bit of vanity getting in the way of that. I think in the future, if I surf waves like that, I will, but it's again, baby steps. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. And there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So tell me about Waimea. How did that session come about? Um, that was mainly because we wanted to just throw our new guy, Ethan, just straight into it. So Ethan oh joined STAB maybe like six months ago or something like that. I could have the timeline wrong, but it's recently. And he's just like a 22, 23 year old kid from Australia, super soft-spoken, super smart, like crazy smart, studied neuroscience. And I don't know what he's doing working for us, but um, yeah, he came out to Hawaii on the back end of our trip. And it was pretty amazing because within the first 72 hours of him being there, the only waves he'd surfed were pipeline sunset haliva and waimea so he did the triple crown and the eddy in his first three days ever uh on the north shore so that was uh, the waimea session was day two and it was just it looked like a pretty like fun size swell like the night before i went to bed thinking like i'm just excited for the experience i kind of always told myself that i didn't want to surf waimea just because the crowd looked so hectic and i i've surfed like medium big waves before and like it's just not really for me like one obviously it's a little bit scary but it's more just I don't get the reward from it as much as some people I'd rather surf like a medium size wave that barrels and get super drained like that's way more exciting to me than taking off on like a big wave and just kind of going straight but I was like okay you know what Ethan's here like we have to do this whole Hawaii experience thing so I went to bed thinking like oh the waves are going to be like fun it'll be pretty minor like wasn't scared whatsoever because didn't really know what what the day had in store. And then I woke up the next day and we're driving along the strip and we look over at sunset 
and it's just white water as far as you can see. And I was like, oh my God, like it's way bigger than we thought it was going to be. Um, but anyway, we go picked up Ethan. Um, I stopped over at Ashton's house to grab his board because he hurt his knee like the day or two before. So he couldn't surf. And he luckily let me use his beautiful Al Chapman um, red banana board, eight six, I think, or something like that. And anyway, we go down, we see, um, oh, what's that photographer's name? He's from Santa Cruz. Nelly. Anyway, Nelly, yes, Nelly. So Nelly snaps a photo of us on the beach, which is like, I'm so glad that we had that moment immortalized. It was just myself, Taylor Paul, who is kind of our resident big wave guy, surfs Mavs all the time. Uh, Brendan Buckley, who actually dabbles in bigger waves himself back at France where he lives and Ethan, 23 year old kid from Australia. And we paddle out. I get smoked in the shore break. First of all, paddling out like just biggest rookie kook thing ever, like just ran out, mistimed it, got smashed into the sand, uh, pick myself up, paddle back out. And then we got out there and that lineup is a lot smaller and tighter than I kind of thought it was. Like, I don't know. I just kind of thought Waimea looks like this giant bay and almost like you can just kind of like take off wherever you want. But the spot where you catch the wave is actually pretty tight and it's like kind of hugs the the point a little more than you'd think. So yeah, it was a little just nerve wracking, especially when everybody's swinging around like nine foot plus surfboards. Like it's, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's a lot. And then there's a lot of energy. Like there was one wave that basically closed out the bay, which I wasn't expecting at all. Um, and then, yeah, we just, we all caught a few waves and it was a mostly pleasurable experience, but I, I was also really glad to get to the sand because it did feel like a lot. What did you do with the wave that closed out the bay? How do you approach that? Did you have a plan in place? Do you ditch your board? <laughs> Are there other people ditching in front of you? Uh, I was far enough out that I didn't get hit by it. I think a few people got okay. caught by it for sure. But yeah, it's one of those things where anytime you're surfing a bigger wave, generally speaking, you're going to see a set looming and then you have a decision to make. Do I stay in place and stay where I can potentially catch the wave, but also potentially get hit by the wave? Or do I paddle out with the masses and avoid getting whatever could happen to me? And more often than not, I chose that. Um, and that time I did as well. And then a couple of times on just smaller ones, we decided to swing around and go, which was great. Uh, how hectic was the crowd that day? I can't compare it to anything else YMA wise. Cause like I said, I've never been out there, but to me, it seemed pretty hectic for sure. Like every time you're going to paddle for a wave, it felt like there was either somebody in your path or you were getting in somebody else's way or something. And I know that Waimea has a bit of like a Malibu vibe where it's kind of like party waves are okay, but I felt really, really weird and uncomfortable going in front of anyone. So I did my best. I think on all three of my waves that I caught, I was always either the deepest person or just the only person on the wave. Like I really didn't feel comfortable going in front of someone just not for like the etiquette so much as like, I would just feel so bad if I was responsible for injuring somebody. Like, I feel like I wouldn't be able to deal with that. So yeah, I just, I would rather put myself like, a bit deeper and risk it in that sense, rather than going in front of someone and maybe cutting them off, especially like John, John paddles out while we're there. Can you imagine hurting John John? Like if you went on the same wave as him and ran him over, like your life and especially my like career would be over because there's a thousand cameras. Everybody's going to know that you just hurt the most popular surfer in the world right before the start of his comeback season. Like that, I, you seriously wouldn't be able to live that down. So I just tried to avoid that at all costs. That's hilarious. I would, I never thought of that. 
I mean, I would have thought about it if I was in your position, but I've never put myself in that position. Um, even running him over. Yes, absolutely. But also if you just cooked and like took the wrong line and made him straighten out and take the wrong line for himself, you know, and put himself in peril, any of that would have been horrible. It would have made, yeah. it would have gone viral basically. Exactly. And that I couldn't imagine something worse than that. So I just tried to avoid that. Yeah. Smart. Um, how scary can you kind of distinguish the differences in scaredness between Waimea and pipe is one scarier than the other? Mm, yeah, I would say, so pipe is more kind of like choose your destiny sort of thing. It feels like, like I said, like when you're surfing pipe, it really is kind of all up to you, how much danger you want to put yourself in. You could sit out there for six hours and it could feel like you were sitting at lowers. You know what I mean? If you just sit in a spot where you're safe, um, Waimea feels like you cannot control the chaos. You can't control the people. You can't control a rogue set. So I would say I definitely felt more fear at Waimea, but I think it takes more courage to go on like a pipe wave in that sense. Like I'd rather get held down than get slammed into the reef, which has happened to me before. And it's terrible. Did you take any beatings at Waimea? Yeah. My first wave, I, somebody kind of like went in front of me and so I had to straighten out and nothing crazy, but I just, it's, you forget how much power just that white water has. Like I didn't fall dropping in. I fell after the wave had already broken and still I got like washed so far. My wetsuit top got completely filled up with water. It was like a Michelin man, which I realized is like actually really dangerous. I think I would wear like a spring suit or something if I was going out again, because that whole open bottom part really leaves you exposed to getting filled with water on a top. So yeah, it was like, that was probably the most work I got the entire trip even though it was just like a, an already broken wave. Right. Um, <clears throat> how did that board go? Again, I have nothing to compare it to whatsoever, but it went amazing as far as I could tell. Like my, my one good wave that I think I posted on Instagram, like it was not an easy drop necessarily. <laughs> like it was, no. uh, yeah, it was pretty fast and kind of bouncy and whatever. And it, it seemed to hold its line really well. So I think, uh, yeah, old, old Al knows what he's doing. It definitely does. There's a, you know, handful of boards that people talk about just being kind of magic and better than skip fries would be one of them. Those boards would be one, but I'll just never end up riding them. You know, I just don't have access to them. The type of waves that that board requires, I don't really have an interest in surfing and you certainly, I'll just take everybody's word for it because you certainly don't want to put yourself out at Waimea on something that isn't proven. So, but I also am curious as to what the difference would be between riding that and something else, you know? Well, Ethan was riding a Bushman and he fell in a few drops. And I don't think that's because Bushman's a bad shaper, but it just, his board was 10 foot and mine was eight, six. And Waimea has a surprisingly kind of like cuppy face. Like I kind of always thought it was just sort of fat, but it's really not. And his, you could just see on the couple of waves that he fell on, his nose was just a little bit too long. So there is yeah. definitely something to board selection out there. And the, at least the size of mine seemed to be ideal. Well, there, there is that bully takeoff, but there also is chop out there too. And so if you have too much board, it's really difficult to navigate chop, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, back to your work at STAB. Um, 
did you ever feel any apprehension about putting your surfing on display for the internet to critique? Obviously with doing board reviews, but doing the stuff that you just talked about too. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Do you I really? Get, um, yeah. I mean, I get pretty picked. Like some people are really nice, um, but I get picked apart a lot as well. So yeah, for sure. It's still every single time I put myself up, I typically don't read the Instagram comments when I have to post myself for like a board review or whatever. I just would rather not. You're in a very unique situation, um, but you're obviously more talented than 99% of the pundits who are saying anything at all. So there's no reason for you to feel any amount of apprehension or shame or whatever would come with it. Um, but I applaud you for doing it because there's not a lot of people who would face that or develop a thick enough skin to face it, even if they are talented enough to do it. Well, it is, it's funny, right? Because it all, it still comes back to that little kid dream of wanting to be a pro surfer. So in a way there's like a, there's one part of me that is like, oh yeah, I'm stacking, I'm doing it. You know, like there is like a, a vanity side to it as well. But I think that at this point, certainly the self-consciousness of it overrides that but it is still like I mean I'm I realize how fortunate I am to be in the position that I am to like get to surf as part of my job like that's incredible when yeah. I didn't think that was a possibility when I was 16 and I kind of came to that realization that pro surfing wasn't going to be for me so to be 28 now and having that as part of my job description is pretty wild um your joyride reviews are the best in class as far as I'm concerned Wow. Thank you. That's really nice. I know a lot of people love uh, Noel as well, but yeah, it's definitely a different little style to what we do. He's much more, I think, analytical. He probably knows a lot more about surfboards than I do, but we try to blend a bit more of the kind of just like funness to it than the super serious approach. And I think hopefully people can enjoy both or maybe they like one more than the other, but that's really nice of you. No, I think, yeah, there's definitely room for everyone. You know what I mean? People can enjoy both. Um, but I think you're doing a great job with those. Um, what are your career ambitions? I mean, I know that you said this role, you couldn't have conceived of this role when you were 16. And it's because this role didn't exist. It only exists in this new modern world. But I have a feeling also, you can write your own ticket. Your background's interesting enough. You're smart enough. You're talented enough you can kind of design where you go from here. So what are your career ambitions? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. And I definitely don't have like one specific thing that I'm aiming toward. Or if I do, it's vaguely specific and that I would love one day to have something of my own. And I still, I don't know what that is exactly, but I think it would be really fun to try something on my own to start something. And it could be a product, it could be a service. I'm not really sure. Um, Short term, you know, I, it's pretty hard to give up the lifestyle that, you know, doing this whole surf media thing affords me. Like I still like my favorite thing in the world is surfing. I want to go on several trips a year. So I really want to keep doing that. But yeah, long term, like it's funny because when I was, you know, in college or whatever, I would have said that this is my dream job. And, and in a way it still is. But then you think like, okay, well, I'm going to be 30 soon. You know, I just got married probably have a kid in the next few years and it's like yeah like maybe there is like kind of something beyond this like I guess it's just kind of maturing and evolving and I don't know exactly what that thing is yet but I'm sure I'll figure it out and I definitely think that there will be some sort of growth in the future I would hope 
um, there is whatever you want in the future, you know, uh, it's all up to you. I think I was actually just reading before we got on, um, the piece that you guys posted, Ryan Miller interviewing Nathan Florence. Did you read that yet? I did. Yeah. Um, and it's inspirational, you know, like to hear Nathan, first of all, I love Ryan Miller. So I was glad to see, and obviously their rapport is so comfortable that I think it's a smart thing to let Ryan interview Nathan, but, um, to hear Nathan talk about writing his own ticket and not, uh, adjusting quickly to the way that the surf media landscape is changing and all that kind of stuff was, I think, really inspirational to carve your own path and to do your own thing, you know, because ultimately, I think your employer kind of wants you to do that as well. It adds value to their property and they will um, try to make you whatever you're doing a part of their property as much as possible and integrate it. But they want you to be an individual creatively exploring what you're good at, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly what I've experienced working at STAB for sure. Like they've been so supportive of any of the ideas and anything that I wanted to do really, they've pretty much written a blank check for me to do it. And then luckily we've been able to fund most of it on the back end. Um, but yeah, like I, again, I'm still trying to figure it out, obviously, but I think yeah. that, yeah, I, I don't know exactly what that thing is going to be, but I, I hope eventually one day it will click for me and I'll be like, oh yeah, this is obviously like what I want to do next. And then I'll be there. What does uh, Stab expect of you? Like you were hired on as a writer. What is your role now? Well, a lot of things. Um, I guess my main like job title and like what my actual role is, is overseeing most of the free content that we put out. So that's on the free side of the site, on Instagram, on YouTube. Like I kind of oversee most of those free channels, whereas Brendan Buckley and Taylor Paul oversee the premium stuff. And then, but I'm also tasked, you know, most weeks I do a podcast. I obviously do my board reviews on like a monthly basis. I do a wetsuit review annually. We have three or four other bigger projects throughout a year, whether it's Stab High, Stab Highway, uh, the pickup that I'm intricately involved in, whether it's like being face to camera or doing writing and directing and producing. So it's a lot of things all at once, but I would say that like my main job role and title is like the, overseeing the free content that we put out. Gotcha. Um, what do you think Sam's ambitions are for Stab? Let's say in the next three to five years. Well, I can't speak for him, but certainly to grow the subscriber base, because when you grow that base, it gives you opportunity to do bigger and better things. Um, I don't know if he wants to, like, there might be different avenues that he wants to leverage stab into, like maybe it wouldn't just be media, maybe it would be, you know, doing more live events. Like I know that stab high has always been like a really exciting one for us to think that like we can put on live events and, and whatnot. So Sam is always like five steps ahead. Like it's crazy to me how much oversight and foresight that he has in the world and media and everything. So he's always like, <laughs> he's coming up with ideas that people then end up doing in three years. And I'm like, weren't you talking about that? He's like, yeah. So um, yeah, I would expect Stab to evolve a lot in the next five, 10, 15, whatever years. It seems to me that he's taking cues from outside of surfing it seems that he's really plugged in with what's just happening in the world. And um, 
then recognizing kind of trends that are happening and then figuring out how that looks on a micro level in the surf world. Um, and he's very, and he's good at it. You know, that's a smart, I'm not trying to diminish his foresight at all. I think it's really smart. And the crazy thing is there's just so much opportunity in surfing if you can properly fund it. Cause like the WSL is doing what they do, but it's very specific and unique. And we all watch it because there's no other, uh, competitions really to watch, but there's a lot of different versions that could exist of competition and they don't, without the parameters that the WSL have built, there's actually tremendous opportunity for better competitions even, and, you know, heavyweight fight type stuff and being able to move on the fly and just target swells and all that kind of stuff. And you guys and Surfline, I would say, are the best positioned kind of entities to actually exploit some of those things. Developing the business model is really the big hiccup there and, and seeing it through and get the audience to kind of follow through. And it might just be a big capital outlay for two or three years while you're trying to make it work and then the payoff. But there's also, you guys have developed a bunch of stuff that needs to be maintenanced in the meantime as well, that it's hard to kind of do business development at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that's what we saw. The biggest example of that for us is surf 100, which yeah. is obviously more of like a strike mission style event. And then it's uh, broadcast after the fact, like it's edited down and then broadcast as live. But of course it happened months prior. And the thing with that is like, it, it is wild how much it costs to do one of those for, you know, it ends up being a 120 minute broadcast or whatever. And it is so expensive. So obviously your two options there are one, get a main sponsor to blanket the whole thing or get people to pay for it. We went the pay route and definitely lost money on those ventures, but it's, yeah, it's a matter of like, can you get the funding? I don't, I don't know if you can get people to fund something that big. I think that that might require some like non-endemic dollars or maybe, maybe it is a surf brand that does it or whatever, but yeah, it, like the broadcast that the WSL put on knowing what it costs to do our little thing must be incredible. And that is why they're so lucky to have a billionaire donor essentially. Yeah, totally. Well, we all are right. Um, kind of wrap up questions. What other surf media do you follow? Uh, like on Instagram or uh, just in daily life? Like you guys are obviously setting trends and, breaking news but do you follow any other surf media in terms of like what websites i go to i go to surfline on a pretty daily basis but pretty much just to look at forecasts and cams um i don't really visit any of the australian sites or anything like that i will go on beach grit every once in a while um more just to see if we like missed any major news things and honestly like i don't know if it's me being kind of like jaded on the surf media thing, or it's just, there's not something out there that I see as like necessary to my life. But yeah, I really don't like look too many other places for surf media. Is Instagram a main source of information for you? Yeah. Um, I would say so. I like a lot of my job is posting on Instagram. And so as a result, I end up kind of like doing a bit of scrolling. I would say that I'm less interested in Instagram now than I have been in the past, like four years. Like, I don't, it just seems way worse to me. I don't know if it's 
all the ads and stuff that come up or the content just isn't quite there, but it's just not that interesting to me anymore. So every once in a while, I'll like scroll through and, and every once in a while you find a little nugget of information that's actually useful. Um, especially just obviously that's where most athletes are uploading any news relevant to them. But other than that, like, I don't know, like I just, we try to kind of stay in our own lane and focus on what we're focusing on and get it done that way. Has anything replaced Instagram? I got, I, I could easily spend hours a day on TikTok. It's such a better algorithm and the content so much better, but I try not to, I actually deleted it off my phone because I realized how <laughs> diminishing it was to my life experience. Um, but I wouldn't get any surf news or anything from there. That's just like cheap entertainment, basically. Does Stab have a TikTok account? We do. That is relatively dormant. Um, we had a kid on that left maybe a few months ago and he was like 23 or something and he understood that world. So he was doing some posting for us. But since he left, that has basically fallen to the wayside. So we're kind of in search of another kid in that age range who really understands that world to come on and take that on. So if that's you listening to Surf Splendor, uh, send us a DM, send us an email, and maybe you will have a job. Um, given your nomadic lifestyle in the last 18 months or two years, do you have a quiver with you or what do you do for surfboards? Yeah. Well, I get a lot of surfboards. That is one thing that I definitely am never short of. So I have, I have some boards here in New York. I have some boards down in Costa Rica where we lived before. And then I have a few little acorns spread around the globe so that in case I ever land in one of these little destinations, I always have like a board to ride. So yeah, I've, I've got plenty of surfboards. What are you, what are you interested in riding right now? Recently, I've been getting way more in, I mean, I guess this is just so like cliche, like everybody else, but like into riding like twin fins and even like I got like a semi, I wouldn't really call it a proper mid length, but for me, it kind of is. It's like a long fish from Matt Pagan that I just bring out when the waves are subpar or whatever. And even when they're like fun, but like on days when you wouldn't surf otherwise, if it's like knee high or whatever, like I can just cruise around and catch a few waves on that and have fun. Um, so definitely less of like the performancey shortboard things, but then I went to Hawaii and have this incredible quiver of TNC boards that it was like a shortboard, a step up and like a bigger step up. And that just regenerated my love for like high performance boards. Like they were just so good. So it, it depends on the waves essentially. Were they built for you? They were. Yes. Who shaped them? Uh, the one and only Glenn Pang. Sweet. Um, yeah, it's great. Is Matt, is Mike Pagan still working with you guys? No, not currently. Like uh, okay. sometimes he does some freelance stuff, but he's not on our like payroll or anything. Got it. Um, yeah, like I've been tracking a little bit about what Matt has been shaping and, uh, yeah, they look interesting. They look good for what he's writing El Porto and stuff. Yeah. I just love the fact that he is a, um, preacher i think or i don't know exactly what the term is i'm not religious and his last name is pagan that just always gives me a good giggle <laughs> i never even thought about that actually that is funny and he's got these boards uh, that look like tombstones <laughs> mine's black too so it's just it's great have you mentioned that to him no i haven't so uh not if you're listening to this just know that i get a good giggle out of that every time i look at your surfboard that is funny um what surf trips are on your horizon? What's next for you? Um, well, 
we are thinking of doing a stab highway in California. So that's currently being planned. I hope it comes off. Uh, there's a few different kind of balls in the air and a few different things that have to align, but I think we're, we're going to be able to pull that off. And that will be like San Francisco to San Diego, basically um, King of the road style thing that we do. And beyond that, we're thinking about maybe another um, pool event for stab high. There's a few different pools that are going to be opening up in the coming months and yeah, we're looking at maybe the Japan pool, maybe one in Brazil. So there's a few different options for us. And then on a personal level, I'd really love to go back to Indo this year. So I'm going to try to make that work maybe in the sort of back half of the year. The Indo trip, was that with STAB this past year? No, that was like my first real true drop everything year on vacation trip in a long time. And uh, yeah, that was, I mean, there's definitely like it, it was through stab in the sense that i got some major perks from working for stab yeah. but that was like a vacation trip did your wife go yeah that's where i actually Good. proposed to her was on the island at Kandui, Kandui resort amazing amazing and did you guys honeymoon uh that we, we're calling that our pre-honeymoon and then we actually are getting we're having like a proper wedding in a year, like February of 2023. After that, I think we'll probably do like a legit honeymoon. I know she really wants to go on like a safari. So we're looking at maybe going to Africa. And then obviously I'm going to work that into me getting to surf somewhere in Africa too. So <laughs> we each- uh... well, That was actually going to be my next question is, I feel like, I mean, I don't know her at all, but I feel like you got to leave the surfboards at home for the honeymoon. Give her your full attention. Oh, well, good thing she's not going to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, does she want your full attention or does she care if you go surf? Well, she surfs too. She doesn't love cold water and she definitely doesn't love sharks. So I don't know if she'll necessarily surf on that trip, but I also don't think she'd be opposed to spending a little time in J-Bay or Durban or wherever else after we go okay. see some rhinos and elephants. I trust that you'll navigate it successfully, but just consider what I suggest. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a very informative and entertaining conversation, Michael. I really appreciate it. Do you want to give, I know we talked about stab a lot, but do you want to give your podcast a plug too? Yeah, why not? So um, for those who don't know, I do a podcast almost weekly on um, the drop, which is stabs weekly podcast, but Stace Galbraith and I have a section on there almost every week. That's called the cusp or the currently untitled surf podcast, where we talk about all things WSL competitive surfing. So we actually have an episode um, that'll be on the pipe contest. I don't know when this is dropping, but yeah, we talk all about the pipe contest. So you can find that on Stab Podcasts, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to them. And yeah, that's pretty much it. I always like the title, Cusp. It's clever. Thank you. Yeah. Did you come up with that? I did. Yeah. I like it. All right, Mikey, at Unholy Potato, we'll be investigating where that comes from. I'm going to start Googling, see if mm. I can find any references anywhere. Good luck. Okay, thank you. All right, man, thanks for the time. No problem. See ya. All right, see ya.
excellent insights and information. Michael, thank you for that great conversation about the Helmet Talk. The Helmet Talk has been kind of pointed out and referenced in the WSL broadcast and elsewhere, but I think Michael has kind of done the best job at doing a deep dive with those articles on STAB. And so, yeah, I think he is an advocate for him, and I think that his perspective on um, confronting the stigma and feeling awkward about it is also very relatable. So good job, Michael. I will post everything that he and I discussed in today's episode on surfsplendorpodcast.com. There's a little rating button. You can rate it there. You can leave a comment there. I would also encourage you to rate and review the show in iTunes or Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen. A lot of people find the show through word of mouth, but people also find the show by Apple recommending it to them. And so if you're rating it well, reviewing it, that helps strangers to find the show, basically. So I encourage you to do that, and I thank you for that in advance. I'd also like to give a thanks to all of our subscribers who support our work at $5 a month. Michael and I discussed Stab's Stab Premium model, and I launched ours um, right around that same time that they did, just a little bit prior, and it really has been revolutionary for our business, and I think it is the way of the world moving forward, and it's actually a much better business model. I think it allows us to create better content um, for a variety of different reasons, and I think Stab has done that as well. So thank you to all of our subscribers. If you would like to jump on board and support our work here, There are hard costs involved that that goes to cover, but it also goes towards investing in future content. It allows us to build out concepts that we've only thought about in recent years. It's gonna allow us to actualize that stuff. So surfsplendorpodcast.com, click on the subscribe tab on the left or navigate to it along the top menu bar. It's five bucks a month. You won't notice it, but it does make a huge difference here. Thank you. All right, I will leave it there. We uh, dropped an episode of Spit earlier in the week. Hardcore Surf History dropped an episode uh, with Wayne Lynch. Thank you for that, Tyler Brewer. And then uh, Chaz Smith and I get back on Friday for The Grit for one final show before the Pipeline Pro ends. So go and grab all of that stuff, and then I'll be back here next week with an all-new episode of Surf Splendor. All right, until then, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to enjoy pipe and to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and of course, shred on. You stand, you stare where